Hi everyone and welcome to Empathy Gaps, an online video podcast focused on creating a safe space to discuss mental health and psychology and social media, while also working to address the needs of the current mental health crisis. I'm Tiffany Zhang, your host, and today we have a very special guest, Carla Marie Manley. Dr. Manley is a clinical psychologist, author, and speaker. She specializes in mental health illnesses, relationships, slash couple support, gender identity, and personal transformation. She has also written three books, Aging Joyfully, Joy from Fear, Date, Smart, and a fourth one on its way called Joy of Imperfect Love. Additionally, she has been featured in NBC News, US Today, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many others. Dr. Manley, thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to join me. Before we start, is there anything else that you want to add regarding to what you do and who you are? You offered a great background, Tiffany, and amongst all of those other things, I um, am a yoga teacher, a meditation uh, teacher, and a practitioner of both of those. I love nature. I love the environment. I love traveling. So that's, I love my dog, Freedom. I love my partner, all of those things, my family, my the world is so abundant and joyful, even with everything we're facing right now. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So I guess my first question would be like kind of to establish some background, I guess, like what kind of led to your love for psychology and like what kind of led you to chose this path slash career? That's a really good question. I think I knew from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to be a psychologist. I don't know where I got the idea, except I remember that Lucy in the Charlie Brown comic strip, who's not really a great role model, but she was giving out support through her little mental health shack. And I always really liked that, but my family had other ideas for me. I came from a very large Catholic family and was trained to do what I was told to do. And as many women are to be very quiet and do as you're told. And so it wasn't until later, later in life, after I went to law school, and then got my master's. And when I got my master's in psychology, my um, father thought it was such an inferior profession, that he didn't go to my graduation. And so I ended up in the business world and was successful in that world, but very unhappy. And so I pivoted finally, to go back to what I loved from the beginning. And that was to earn my doctorate in psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist. I absolutely am glad I had the courage to shift because it's my passion and helping others is what makes me, you know, it's one of the things that makes me the happiest. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so I'm really glad that you were able to like shift and stuff. I feel like it's not easy to shift when everyone else around you kind of like, I guess, doesn't want you to. But I guess like my next question, I guess like how has social media I know like with the rise of social media how has social media changed our empathy like do you think it has like desensitized us in a way I think in you know nothing is all good or all bad in general but it's how we use it and I think social media I tend to use it sparingly and with great awareness because everything that the psyche takes in that the eyes and ears take in it impacts us either for our good or not so good. And so I think that there are elements of social media that can absolutely be phenomenal for us. It can help us connect. It can help us give us windows into other people's lives. However, when we use social media to compare ourselves to other people, we can absolutely become desensitized 
to who we are and what's important to us. And sometimes social media also goes into some pretty dark places and can be very judgmental and highly critical. And that's absolutely toxic for all of us, for the people doing the toxic behavior and certainly for the recipients of the toxic energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like along with that, also like online hate and cyberbullying, like especially like on social media platforms, I feel like you don't see the person in front of you. So it's it can be easy to forget that you're talking to, I guess, like a real person on the other side of the screen. And I also like on the desensitization part, I well, I talked to you before. I did read the article that you featured in USA Today about like how a celebrity's death was circulating online and how people um, were kind of like circulating that video online, like entertainment. And I think I guess that kind of shows, I guess. And also, I guess, like kind of pivoting to dating and love do you think our perception of dating slash love has shifted for the worse or better with social media i love relationships i love the world of dating and um marriage and companionship and all of that it's one of the reasons i started my podcast it's called imperfect love to help people understand that love is imperfect Yet because we live in a world where the ideals, the standards are pretty high and they're often illusion-based, we can forget that it takes work to create a healthy relationship. It's one of the reasons I wrote down and I, I sat down and wrote Joy from Fear. It's also the reason I wrote Date Smart, because Date Smart, um, transform your relationships and love fearlessly. So many of the clients, whether individuals, groups, couples that I work with, they get lost thinking that a relationship should be X, Y, Z. And it's easy to forget in today's world where instant gratification is very high, very common. We expect people to know our needs and meet our needs. And we expect bliss. We expect a fairy tale. But Real love is never a fairy tale. It just isn't. It takes a lot of hard work. And so I emphasize in all of my work that love is messy. Life is messy. The really carefully curated images we see on social media that show the perfect honeymoon, the perfect couple. Yes, there are glimpses of that. There are snapshots of that in life. But no relationship, no matter how healthy, is going to be all perfect. Mm -hmm. also i know like on like whenever or i feel like this is like kind of like a common trend like on tiktok i know people like whenever they post a social like a relationship of their a tiktok of their relationship people in the comments are usually like they comment something like like sleeping on the highway or like eating glass or something and i feel like seeing like a lot of like i guess like cute relationship tiktoks can sometimes set people up for unrealistic standards because they think that their relationship should be like that as well on tiktok and when it's not it can set people up for i guess like it can make them feel disappointed and think that there's something wrong with them and there was like this video essay that i watched it was basically talking about how many people in today's world they think as they think of love as something passive, something that just like happens or like a feeling and they're like waiting to be loved rather than like increasing, I guess like, well, instead of thinking about how they can love more, they're like kind of thinking about how they can be more lovable. It's, you know, another really good point, Tiffany, because it's natural from childhood forward to want to be loved. We come out of the womb wanting 
affection and love and feeding. So it's a natural part of who we are, but part of the maturation process, the emotional maturation process, because some people are in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and never emotionally mature. So it's not something that comes just with time, we have to work on it. And a piece about love is that it's the tagline for my podcast, you do not need to love yourself perfectly to love others well. But it's really interesting because the more we work on knowing ourselves and loving ourselves with compassion, all of our faults, all of our strengths, all of our weaknesses, just knowing and working on it, the more we're able to love others and others are able to love us back. So it's not a closed system of love me or, you know, love self. It's an open system where we want to be constantly spreading love, love within ourselves, love with others. And the more we do that, the more we create a reciprocal energy where love is coming in and love is going out. And we're not really keeping score. That said, there is a subset of the population, people who are truly have narcissistic personality disorder, for example, or people who are very high on the continuum of narcissism, where they are so self-absorbed that trying to get love from them, it's just not going to work. It's just those, unless they engage in the self-help, the, you know, psychology work that they, the psyche work that they need to engage in, they will stay in that closed system of caring only about themselves, in which case the wise person realizes, okay, I'm dealing with someone who does not want to connect, who is not going to give love and receive love in a reciprocal way. And that's the time where we get to look at a relationship and say, hmm, it's not going anywhere. I'm best off somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then I guess kind of going on to online dating, like how do you think online dating has impacted the dating world? Gosh, that's another great question because it's far reaching. In the not too distant past, people lived in smaller communities where we knew people knew who they were dating or the family. And so there were repercussions. There was a lot more transparency, not that things were perfect, but there was more transparency and more natural connection. Today, as you were saying earlier, for example, with cyberbullying, we can be using online dating in really unhealthy ways. We can take advantage of people. We can pretend to be someone we're not. We can do all sorts of nefarious things that harm us and certainly other people. So I think that that's one of the downsides of online dating, that there can be a lot more that's behind the scenes, a lot more that can be cloaked. I also think, however, that well-used online dating, where people are being mindful and intentional and underscore respectful, because to me, that's the key of life of being, of living with integrity, treating someone the way you would want to be treated. And I don't care how old someone is, whether they're 10 or, you know, 100, we all do our best when we're treating others with integrity, 
and treating ourselves with integrity. So I think online dating is absolutely tremendous because when it's used with integrity, so for if somebody is looking for a long-term commitment or marriage, they can just say that this is who I am. This is what I'm looking for. Somebody is looking for a quick hookup and that's what they're into. They say that, no surprises. And whoever agrees to it, that's what they get. And so I think if we are just respectful, really genuine, um, transparent, honest, know what we want, state what we want. And this is a piece that I really talk about in Date Smart, that there are times in our lives where we don't know what we want, where we're out of a long-term relationship and we think we want hookups or we think we want a new partner, but we don't really know. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say, hey, I don't know what I want. I'm a bit of a mess or I don't know what I want. I'm in transition. So again, I don't think we have to have certainty, but I think we can always strive to have integrity. Mm -hmm. I think that applies to like everything like in life, not just online dating. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And I think as you said, like online dating, it isn't like inherent like completely good or completely bad because like on one hand as you said people can be like catfishing or like presenting themselves as someone who they are not and also I've heard of like like you like you know there's like horror like on like online horror dating stories where like I guess like they were like pretty like badly catfish or like younger woman got like harassed by someone when they said like they didn't want to go on a second date or like were no longer interested but yeah as you said I think people like online dating has made dating more private, I guess. And also I feel like certain groups, like I guess like LGBTQ individuals, like I feel like they can also benefit from online dating when it's like used appropriately. Absolutely, because you can find if it's used mindfully, LGBTQ population plus can absolutely, you have more possibilities, more connection, more potential for finding people who are like-minded. And that's why the transparency and the integrity are so important because there's no gender or propensity for, you know, sexual behavior that's inherently good or bad. It's how we use it. It's how transparent. And like you said, if somebody's online and they're being bullied because they didn't want to engage in a second date, that's something that can happen in real life too i mean it can happen with someone who shows up at your door that you met at a church or 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 whatever so it's really about embracing some of the basics of being a good human that never goes out of style every generation can benefit from being a good human Mm -hmm, definitely and as we were saying before i feel like it it like it is really important to be a good human especially with I guess social media and stuff because as I said before I feel like it's easy to forget that like there's you're you're like talking to a real person I guess and I guess like I'm interested in like your book I know you mentioned before your books like your book joy from fear I guess why do you think that fear has like such a like is seen as such a negative emotion when I was getting my doctorate Uh, which was after my master's and, you know, years past. And when I was getting my doctorate, I noticed that I always thought I was a really strong, fearless kind of person, but I had to come to terms with the fact that I let people rule my life for a long time. And I realized it was fear. 
And it was a real shock for me. So I wanted to understand fear. I wanted to research fear. So I created a qualitative and a quantitative questionnaire about fear. I did a lot of fear research. I wrote my dissertation on fear, presented the dissertation on fear, and was blessed enough to have an external reader who's a New York Times bestselling author, phenomenal human being. He said, this should be a book. Well, it took me a long time to take that very heavy material and translate it into something that is reader friendly and that's non-academic, but still really valid and approachable. And so that's how Joy from Fear came into being. And I was one of the main subjects because I was the one who had lived that life of not realizing I had been in the embrace of fear. And then I realized in the course of my research that many people are afraid of fear. They think it's a bad thing. But when we see that fear has two sides, the side that's really scary, and then the other side that's saying, what the heck are you afraid of? If it's not a barking dog that's going to bite you or a tiger that's going to you know, eat you, what's there to be afraid of? And in most cases, when we have a conversation with fear, like, hey, what, what are you really afraid of? And for me, it was my family won't love me or God will hate me or I'm a bad person if I do what I want to do and don't take care of other people. Uh, will I have any money? Will I live under a bridge? All of these fears. And then I realized, well, okay, some of those are valid. Maybe I won't be loved by people who say they love me, but if they don't love me because I'm following my dreams, they never really loved me at all. So do you see how when we start having conversations with fear and don't treat it as the enemy, we turn it into a friend because it's telling us, wait, this is a realistic fear and this one is all made up in your head. And that's how we start breaking free of fear and turning it into a friend rather than an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things I feel like things that are or things that make us uncomfortable are inherent are inherently bad because yeah, as you said, like you can always it like fear it like helps you realize some things. And I guess like why don't you think that like why do you think that there's like such a misconception about fear? Like why don't you think that schools give us like proper tools to deal with these negative emotions like fear? So let's pause for a minute. Notice how you use the word negative emotion. You would not believe how many professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists say negative emotion. There are no negative emotions. We have, I come from the five emotion model, which is fear, joy, sadness, disgust, and anger. Every single one of those is a good emotion. They're all healthy, all positive. It's how we use them that can be destructive or unhealthy or negative. So if you think about joy and we think, oh, that's a quote unquote positive emotion. Well, not always. If we're trying to pretend we're joyful and we're really dying inside, then it's really working against us, isn't it? Because of the pretend. But if we're angry, angry often comes up for us, anger, because somebody has disrespected us. Somebody's crossed our boundaries. Somebody's not listening. And in that case, boy, anger is a great messenger. And I was talking with someone earlier today in a phone conversation, and she said, well, you're getting angry because I was being assertive. And I said, no, I'm actually not angry at all. I'm just stating my truth. So people have a really, especially for women, we tend to think we should never get anger, get, get angry. But 
anger is really good. And men are told, well, you can be, I'm overgeneralizing here. Men are told you can be angry, but not sad. And women are told, well, you can kind of be sad, but not too sad. And, but you can be happy. So we get all of these strange messages when in truth, every emotion we have, anger, fear, joy, sadness, disgust, on a very primitive level, they are there to give us messages. So part of becoming emotionally intelligent is making friends with all of our emotions, learning to sit with them, learning to use them in healthy ways, learning emotional regulation. Is it a perfect process? No. It took me years to learn to manage my emotions in healthy ways. Mm. So I guess like why don't you think that schools give us like the proper tools to like I guess like give us like the proper tools to kind of like help transform these quote-unquote negative emotions into like something more positive? I think that some schools are doing it but I don't think enough are and I think it's because we do not yet value mental health education the way we should. And it's, it's abysmal to me. We could create a much better world. We could give younger generations the tools they need early on in life to help them avoid debilitating anxiety, depression, um, all of those things, because we teach math we teach writing skills, we teach science. Why wouldn't we want to teach from an early age this beautiful thing called the psyche, the mind? Why wouldn't we want to really honor that? And so I'm a big believer. There's a stack of books up behind me that I was the um, the main reader for these books for mental health in school systems. And as good as they are, they're all for mm, older adolescents. And that's way too late. Yes, that's a good start, but we ought to be teaching this from kindergarten forward. So I'm with you. And I would be delighted to, when you write a curriculum for, because I'm sure you will do great things, Tiffany, you come to me and I will do some of the reading for it. So be, because that's, I think, what the world needs. The world needs our younger generation, which is so vibrant and brilliant and in ways that other generations, I don't think um, were as empowered. And I believe that we can start making changes in the school system so we can make mental health awareness more a part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that there's kind of like a cycle, like, I guess like, this is like kind of like a generalization, but I guess like, like general public was never really taught about mental health and so i guess like they don't really know like the proper tools like quote unquote like proper tools to like f like view these view these like perceived negative emotions as something more positive so then when they're like in the position of teaching they don't really know how to like teach it i guess either and so then it like kind of creates like a cycle i guess it does create a cycle yet the piece that I think is really important, people born in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s, the internet, our, the information was what you could find in a library or in a set of encyclopedias. But now with 
having social media and the internet and research so readily available and books. I, I take my books very seriously. They all have research back information in them. The research is in the books. There is no excuse for, for an adult to not understand the world of emotions. To me, and I'm not being judgmental, we all have priorities in life. For me, well-being, mental, physical, well-being, spiritual, psychological well-being are all priorities. And for some people, they will put, not that we all don't need a living wage and to be able to pay for food, clothing, shelter, that's always important. But most of us have at least a slice of discretionary time in the day where we can use it for self-education. And many people choose more quick, you know, quick fixes or, you know, and I'm not saying we don't ever want to sit down and binge on Netflix or read a juicy book or just sit and veg. That's all fine and important balance in life. But I do believe it's important for us all, every person, except, you know, the little ones who aren't able to read yet. But I think it's important for us to all start being really mindful about embracing our mental health care as part and parcel of the maintenance of healthy living. It's time. It's really time for us to move away from the stigma and say, wait, this is just an important part of education. It's an important part of living. We want to be, going back to what we were talking about earlier, we want to be good humans. So we need to be educated in the areas that teach us how to be good humans. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I guess you probably, and I guess how, I mean, you probably, I think you touched on it a little bit, but how do you think like specifically can we transform, like how can we ourselves, like if someone was watching this and they wanted to, I guess, like learn how to like perceive fear, like transform into something more positive, like how would they be, how would they be able to do that? That's a really Again, a really good question, Tiffany. And one of the things they can do is go to my website, drcarlamanley.com. There are some free resources. If they look at my books and there are free downloadable resources next to each book. So somebody can just download a couple of pages and get going on it. So Joy from Fear has resources. Every one of the books has resources. And even if a book title doesn't seem to be pertinent to you, download the pages anyway because they are all appropriate for different age levels and for where you are they'll just evoke different things the other thing that someone can do is to look for group therapy work i'm a firm believer i've run a lot of group therapy in my life and it can be fabulous because there are other like-minded people there and you learn from other people it can often be free or low cost or you can see a psychotherapist especially one who is I'm what's called depth oriented with a background in Jungian therapy, but I also do EMDR, CBT, DBT, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, neurolinguistics, and um, other elements. And I'm a big fan of attachment theory. So what someone can do is just start dipping their toes into the water. And if you're looking for a self-help book, what I really recommend that people do is look for self-help books that come with exercises. Mm. Why? 
Because when we're learning, we need to do exercises. You're taking piano, you do exercises. You're taking algebra, you do homework exercises. So if you're reading a self-help book, you it's wonderful. And you're taking concepts and so go, this is great. But unless you're doing personal exercises, you're not taking the concepts and translating them in a real way into your life. And that's why when I designed every one of my books, I was really clear with my publisher, they all need to have exercise sections. And it takes me a lot of work to design them. But why do I want to go to all that work? I don't make any, I'm writing books is not a money making enterprise, it's an act of love. So why do I do that? Because many people can't afford therapy or access therapy. Yet for the cost of a book, if you're willing to listen to it or read it and do some of the exercises for, you know, $20, often less, you can get a lot of self-work done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I really like the idea of like including worksheets because I feel like it's not enough to just like know it. You have to like consciously practice it as well. And so like kind of I guess like moving on to a different topic, like with social media, how can how do you think that we can deal with like information information slash news overload in a healthy way? Because I feel like in today's age, it is like very easy to get overwhelmed overwhelmed with like the wave of information. I'm a big believer, Tiffany, in I don't use so again, I don't use social media a lot, so I really try and walk my talk. Could I really get immersed in it? Absolutely. Do I want to? Absolutely not. To me, a walk, I walk every morning in nature. I could be looking at social media while I'm there, or I could be really immersing myself in the healing benefits of nature and paying attention to my dog or whatever it is I'm doing. So I think it's about practicing healthy habits. And so if I check my social media at all, it's in the morning. And then I'm done. I have no need to check it for the rest of the day. It's the wiring of your brain. So if I wired myself to check my social media frequently, I would be doing it frequently. And there was a time that I did do that. And then I realized it's too, too consumptive. I don't want to be doing that with my time. It doesn't make me feel good. And so I think for people to each just pause, every person to pause. I've had clients who have gone on their own social media diets or completely abandoned social media. And I, in every case, their changes paid off. They noticed increased uh, feelings of well-being, decreased depression, decreased anxiety. So I think it's a matter of just making an agreement with yourself. Hey, I'm going to allow myself 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at at lunch or whatever amount of time works for you. And then this much at night, if I want to, I'm a big believer also in not using social media or news in the evening. Here's why. Whatever we do prior to bedtime, whether it's reading a good book or watching a horror movie or comparing ourselves to all of the so-called perfect people online, it is more likely to be stored in the brain. That's how our brains work. And so I'm a big believer in using my evening hours and it works definitely also for my clients. Use your evening hours, especially those last two or three hours before bedtime to do things that 
feel good to you, that feel gentle to your soul, that feel inspiring. And if that's taking a bath or doing some yoga or sitting on the couch watching a rom-com, whatever it is, just be really mindful. And I also think when it comes to the state of the world, whether it's eco-anxiety or politics or what's happening with Israel right now and all of that, it is really traumatic. And research shows that people who engage in more social media use have higher rates, it's no surprise, higher rates of anxiety and depression and even vicarious trauma. So I wanna be really mindful that why traumatize ourselves? Why would I knowingly expose myself? Now, my partner likes to watch news and, you know, all of the hyper sensationalized events. I don't. And I'm much calmer than my partner. I'm just I'm much calmer and more down to earth. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that when I take in my news, it's either from a regular newspaper or a news show like NPR News Updates or The Economist, where they tend to be much more neutral. It's not sensationalized. So I'm staying abreast of politics, but I'm not engaging um, in many cases, my visual, yes, auditory, sometimes if it's written, it's just my eyes. But um, I really try and try very hard to stay away from images that are triggering. Why? Why would I want to harm my psyche? Why do I want to put images of people who have been decapitated in front of my, you know, in front of my eyes? There's no upside to it. I can read about it and that's horrifying enough and it keeps me abreast of what's happening. But I really would recommend that listeners realize, hey, it's just like whatever you consume at dinner. Why would you eat something at dinner that's going to make you throw up? or make you have nightmares just be a wise consumer of what you put into your mind mm -hmm. i think yeah that's definitely something i think that's definitely something very intriguing and i guess like why do you think that kind of like going off of that like why do you think that teen mental health is at a low and i guess like what can we do to help alleviate the current mental health crisis Teens face a world that is has been ravaged by prior generations, and it makes me very sad and very upset. And I do everything I can to treat the world as kindly as possible and to be mindful, and I think many people don't. And I think for teens who are watching people in their generation and generations before them, leave them a world that has been so mismanaged, all for the sake of so-called progress and money and power. Um, I think if I were a teen in today's world and some of the teens I've worked with, they're angry and rightfully so. They're angry, they're inheriting a world that has been damaged in ways that are possibly irreparable. And then the adults or so-called adults in charge are not taking mindful steps to absolutely get in the way, I mean, prevent further climate change, further climate damage. And I think some of that, and I would completely understand if a teen were, you know, to say straight out, I'm ticked off about this. I'm mad about this. Absolutely. Because we are not making the changes that we ought to be making to prevent further damage to the world you are inheriting. And so I think that that plays a big part in, in teen mental health, be, 
because who would want to be inheriting a world that is in such a mess? And so I think it makes teens like us, but I'm focusing on teens, feel helpless. How? So I think that's a piece of it. I think also world events, politics are also very upsetting and frightening and people generally feel disempowered. And I think some of the choices politicians are making are further disempowering you know, people as a whole, but certainly teens. And I think the lack of support, there's a lot of talk about the increase in teen mental health issues and teen suicidality, but we need to respond with action. We don't need to just talk about it and tout the statistics. We need to get action now and take action now in the schools now to provide more support. And it's really difficult because our system is um, very broken in regard to providing proper mental health support. It's it's a sin. Mm -hmm. So okay. that's some of my, you can tell I get a little, that's when anger is a very positive emotion. Anger to, you know, and being able to speak my truth and speak my mind. And I think teens have every right to demand better treatment and better support. Mm -hmm. Also, I think teens sometimes think that, I guess they don't have power because they're like younger or like they're not the ones like directly in charge or making the laws. But I feel like that is like a misconception. Like I feel like teens have arguably a lot of like, arguably have a lot of power because like with social media and stuff, I feel like the current younger generation is very like, spoken out and I feel like teens definitely do have more power than they realize and I guess to kind of end off everything like can you tell us a little bit about your book that is coming out in 2024 and I guess like what should we expect from it yes happy to but I first want to validate what you said for um teens that there's power in numbers and when teens I'm a big believer in being a peaceful warrior being very peaceful and filled with integrity. And we see with the teens who are, and younger than teens, who are going to court to protect in the environment in various states. That's an example. Of course, they need adults, you know, adult attorneys. But I think teens, when they start using their voices in peaceful warrior ways and realizing that there is power in numbers and that they have the right to demand as a unified front, better treatment of their planet, better treatment of their bodies, their minds, their spirits, their psyches. Absolutely. I believe anytime we stand united in a good cause, um, that good karma, just a term for it, is behind us. And I believe that teens have that power. And I'm constantly amazed by the teens I meet, how articulate, how aware, um, more than prior generations. So I absolutely, absolutely believe it's doable. So thank you for raising that point. And then to my last, my, my, my next book, The Joy of Imperfect Love. I believe in it so much because you might think at the face of it, it's a really sweet cover that it's all about romantic relationships, but it comes from an attachment paradigm. And it comes from this place where if we can learn to love ourselves and grow our self-love through awareness, compassionate awareness, but then even if we have an insecure attachment style, we can earn secure attachment. It's not that it's never available. 
So if you are, you know, what some people call, you know, an avoidant attachment style, you can earn secure attachment. And so the more we become aware of some of these things, and I walk you the readers through it in a very step-by-step way with tons of exercises. I was informed that there are for over 30 exercises. Um, and those are not short exercises. They are long exercises um, and multifaceted. But it allows you to realize, wait a second, these skills of A, embracing my imperfection, because so often we feel like we're broken if we're not perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. So again, where I talked about before, if we get to notice, here are my imperfections. Some of them I can't change. Some of them I do want to change and you know hone and become or not, or shift so that I can become a better human being. Here are my strengths. Some of them I like as they are, some I want to hone and really work on. And then bringing those capacities. And I talk um, about, I'm in the midst of working on cards, you know, Oracle type cards that will go with the book. And I talk about how our feelings our thoughts, our mindsets, our energy, and our actions are all connected. And so concepts like that, that will help people realize all of these feelings are good, but my feelings affect my thoughts. And then some people say, oh, I love you, but they'll treat you horribly. You'll you know, realize love is an action. If somebody is consistently mistreating you, we all make mistakes, but telling you they love you, that's not love. It's just not love. Love is an action word. So concepts like that. Um, and I, I just think it's a fabulous book because it reminds us that it's okay to be imperfect and that we are all works in progress. No one is perfect. And even though some people may look perfect on the outside, we're all a little bit of a mess inside. And that's okay. There's no reason to hide it, but let's work on our messes. And that's basically the message on our book. And the skills can be used in friendships, in families, in love relationships, even at work, because they're all the basic same emotional intelligence skills. Mm -hmm. That sounds like such an exciting book. I really like the Oracle cards idea. I feel like that's very unique. I feel like that'd be really cool. And I guess, yeah, that, that was all my questions. So thank you so much, Dr. Manley, for coming on and speaking with me. I had such a great time speaking with you. And yeah, see you. It was a pleasure. 